I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 7th, 2013. Coming up, top scientists reveal lab-tested secrets to surfing, dating, dieting, gambling, growing man-eating plants, and more. And we talk about the impact of drought, yes, it's still here, on farmers and ranchers. begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. CU Boulder scientists have created a camera that shoots extremely wide-angle images, sort of like a fisheye lens, but without any weird fisheye distortion. To make this camera that surpasses a fisheye view, they took inspiration from a bug's eye view. To appreciate what's special about a bug's eye, first, think about your own eyes. A human eye is a complex organ that can focus, adjust for lighting, and send a huge variety of various bits of data information to the brain, which then creates an image. In contrast, within each of the typical bug's two bulgy eyes, there are hundreds, sometimes even thousands, of separate eyes, and each one sends an entire image to the insect's brain. To mimic the bug's eye way of looking, CU scientists, led by Zhang Langzhao, Mimic the bulgy shape of the bug's eye by using stretchable electronics and a pliable sheet of micro lenses made from a material similar to that used for contact lenses. They mimicked the many different snapshots that a compound eye sends, but created a curved surface with electronic light detectors that match the curve of the bulgy compound eyes. All this eliminated the distortion that's typical in a fisheye lens. The researchers described the camera in an article published today in the journal Nature. Moving from eyes to ears, researchers at Princeton University have created a bionic ear in the lab by printing it with a commercially available 3D printer. Although other body parts like jawbones and bladders have been made with 3D printers, this is the first time electronic components have been incorporated to print a sensory organ. The materials, or the inks, used in the printer were hydrogels mixed with calf cells and silver nanoparticles. This is a simplified first example where the electronics embedded in the ear were simply an antenna to show proof of concept. But if it were connected to a receiver that in turn could be connected to a person's auditory nerve with electrodes, it could allow a deaf person to hear. In addition, such sensory organs wouldn't necessarily be limited to the range of inputs we are used to experiencing, but could also be tuned to be sensitive to sound or light frequencies beyond the normal range of human senses. The research was published in the May 1st issue of the journal Nano Letters. Until we develop warp drives, what would be involved in, say, making a trip to the nearest star, Proxima Centauri? At a distance of four light years, the engineering challenges are, well, daunting. But perhaps even more so are the psychological, physiological, political, and logistical challenges. If you want to hear about and discuss those issues, tonight at Denver Café Scientifique, speaker will be Alaris Elman. The title of her talk is 100-Year Starship, Getting Ready to Travel to the Stars. The Café Sci is held at the Mercantile Room and the Wincoop Brewing Company on the corner of 18th and Wincoop in Lodo, Denver. It starts at 6.30 tonight, and the discussion ends at around 8 p.m. It's free and open to the public.
You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. When you are trying to make a decision about something important or having a disagreement with someone, don't you sometimes wish that you had a scientist with you, a world expert on the topic at hand to help you out? In fact, it would be great to have dozens of experts in many fields available, sort of your own personal brain trust. Well, luckily, Garth Sundam can help you out with his book called Brain Trust, where he has interviewed 93 of the top scientists in fields like physics, genetics, cognitive science, economics, nutrition, mathematics, and talk to them about very important topics in their fields, and not the easy topics like Higgs bosons or Fermat's last theorem and inflationary cosmology, but rather the much more difficult and immediately useful topics like the best design for a paper airplane, how to survive Armageddon, how to create giant man-eating plants and successful dating techniques, and I don't mean carbon dating here, and how to tell when someone is lying. We are happy to have Garth in the studio today to give us some helpful hints on how he gathered such valuable information. Garth Sundam's books include Geek Logic, Brain Candy, and The Geek's Guide to World Domination. And he blogs and is written for Wired, Geek Dad, and Scientific American. Welcome to the show, Garth. Thanks, Joel. Good to be here. First of all, describe your book. What is Brain Trust? <laughs> well, I actually interviewed about 130 Nobel, MacArthur, and National Medal of Science winners. I had to cut it down to about 93 for the book, but I, I pretty much sat in my garage in the car because it's the quietest place in my house, calling amazing people and talking to them about amazing things that we can use in our own lives. So what was your approach? Did you have some questions first, or did you call the scientists and say, hey, what's up? <laughs> well, I always went in thinking that I knew what I wanted to talk about, but you know, invariably we would spin off into something else, and that's what I would end up writing about. Like I, I called this guy uh, Ian Stewart, who is a venerable... Oh, yeah, okay, so you know him. He's a yes. venerable mathematician <laughs> and puzzler in the UK, and so I wanted to talk to him about the math of this card trick that I wanted to write about. But The world's greatest card trick. Yeah, but what he was doing is he was, he was looking into the rotational mechanics that allowed his cat to land on its feet. Because he had this malfunctioning cat, and he was like dropping it that. from progressively higher heights onto these cushions. And, you know, super slow-mo videoing the thing to figure out how the cat was landing on its feet. So you always go in thinking you're going to talk about one thing and end up talking about something completely different. So what was your favorite? My favorite? Well, my favorite person to talk to, ah, uh, let me see. So there's this guy, Wayne Winston, who uh, is Mark Cuban's former stats guru for the Mavericks, and he teaches uh, stats at uh, Indiana. And so... I call this guy up, you know, and I want to talk about how to bet sports. And, you know, he's the guy to talk to. He wrote this book called Mathletics and all those other things. So I'm talking to him on the phone. And in the background, he's yelling at USA Basketball, which was not playing according to his statistical model. And he's like, oh, man, LeBron James can't hit a jump shot. <laughs> okay, well, let me tell you how, you know, this this arbitrage betting works, you know. And so we'd, we'd talk a little bit, and then he'd be yelling and swearing at the at the TV the whole time we were talking, which I, which I, I thought was hilarious. And what I was going to say that the biggest takeaway I found in interviewing, you know, 130 scientists is the absolute disconnect between the tone of a journal article and the tone of a scientist when you get them on the phone. These, these people are, 
bubbly about their specialty, you know, like teenage girls with a Justin Bieber crush. They they are fun to chat with. That's the first comparison I've ever heard of teenage girls and Justin Bieber with scientific articles, but I, I can see that. <laughs> so, do you still hang out with some of these scientists now? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. Yeah. So this dude, um, Skip Garibaldi, is a mathematician at Emory, and I uh, chatted to him about when a lottery ticket can actually be a good bet. Turns out you can actually get a positive expected rate of return on your on your lottery ticket dollar um, by That'll sell books right there. That'll sell books right there. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it turns out that you can make it a good bet but never a good investment. Um, but sure. anyway, so he was in town, what, like two weeks ago for a, a math conference here in Boulder. And uh, we actually ended up at Flagstaff going bouldering. He's a nice guy, and we had a really good time. So, yeah, some of these people I definitely keep in touch with. And and many of them are, are practical. I was going to say, uh, I mean, not that the lottery isn't practical, but yeah. you mentioned basketball. I think you had one about making the perfect foul line shot. Or, yeah. So, uh, or jump shot. Okay. So, uh, I you know what is I'm going to trust I'm going to trust your listeners because this depends on understanding the idea that error is magnified across distance. Okay, so, um, you know, like a one degree error, you know, you go 50 yards out and that thing's going to be a lot more detrimental to your to your end point than if you're only one yard out. So when you're shooting a basketball, you want to balance the desire for the ball to come straight down at the hoop. Right. Because, you know, it makes the hoop look bigger. Everybody knows that. And the desire for the ball to travel the shortest distance so that your error is not magnified. You know, you shoot the ball straight up in the air, it comes straight down at the hoop, but dude, you've gone a long way with that ball. Very high arc. Very high arc. So this guy, John Fontanella, who teaches physics at the Naval Academy, calculated the optimal angle to shoot a basketball, and it turns out that it is 45 degrees plus half the angle that connects your fingers to the rim. So, sure. like, you imagine sure. you, you you pull your fingers further out, you're going to flatten that angle, and you can shoot a flatter shot. And if you're right underneath the hoop, you know, that angle is going to be like, you know, 90 degrees straight up or, you know, 88 degrees straight up. And you're going to add, you know, 44 to 45 and pretty much shoot the ball straight up. So you just need that protractor for every shot, and you've got it. Man, if only I had a protractor, I might have made the sophomore basketball That's team. Right. <laughs> so, so there are practical things in the book of, uh, in addition to, well, I guess it's practical to say how to survive Armageddon. But a lot of them are kind of self-programming, I would yeah. call it, where you're kind of training yourself into or out of habits. Mm -hmm. Sure. Some of those had some very clever tricks. You know, boy, it's interesting. So one of the people I chatted with was uh, George Akerlof, who's a Nobel winner in economics who teaches at Berkeley. And um, he looks at how now, now he quantifies how our identity affects our decisions. So, you know, we hold with, within us all these different identities. You know, you may be the host of a party. You may be the life of the party. You may be a dad. You may be a geek. You may be a blogger or a writer or whatever. The identity that you express at any given moment can thumb the scale of your decisions. You can also help people express identities, therefore thumbing the scale of their decisions. Uh, his example is, you know, you frame, okay, this this is horribly sexist and silly, but, you know, you frame a husband's 
decision to uh, put his clothes in the hamper as hitting the winning basketball shot. Speaking of basketball. Speaking again. of basketball again. And, and you have created connection with an identity that can thumb the scale of results in your favor. But, you know, not everything was practical. And some of the some of my favorite stuff was, well, okay, so I chatted with this guy, Simon Levin, who's a mathematician at Princeton, and he used to mathematically model fish schools. You know, you, you give a fish a certain percentage of follower or leader, and you, you, know, you flip a fish and you see how the change propagates through the group. And once you've made a model that acts like nature, you know, you've modeled the group. But it turns out that the same mathematics apply to how groups of people change opinions. And you can flick a person in a network and watch the change propagate through a group the same way fish change direction, which which is super cool. (laughs) I know there, you know, you have many, many other stories and hints and ideas in the book. I particularly liked cyborg beetles. Now I know how to build a cyborg beetle. That's Yeah, who doesn't great. like that? Yeah. And perhaps for listeners to this show, I thought the conspiracy theories, and when you people feel they have control or not, because of course there are people who believe in the moon hoax and things like that, and I, I found that very interesting. So I just wanted to tell people listening, if you want to hear more details about these things, you can get Garth Sundem's book, Brain Trust at local bookstores, I assume, and Amazon and anywhere books are sold. Uh, Anywhere books are sold. So that's Garth Sundem about his book, Brain Trust. You can find out more about the book and his other books and blogs at www.garthsundem.com. Thank you very much for coming to the show, Garth. Thanks for having me. Listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. Given all the rain and snow on the Front Range and beyond lately, you'd think that Colorado is emerging from the persistent drought, right? Well, hold the champagne. Last year was one of the hottest and driest on record in the state. Some regions, of course, are still reeling. Among those who've suffered the most from the persistent drought are farmers and ranchers. In fact, some have sold off cattle and even shuttered their businesses. That said, high prices have boosted profits for some wheat farmers, for instance. To find out just how badly many farmers and ranchers have been hit by the drought and how they're handling it, researchers at Colorado State University have been surveying them. The latest survey, which looks at the 2012 drought conditions, was recently completed. Here to talk about the survey and the broader environment is Chris Gomans, a research economist at CSU, and Ron Nilsson, a graduate research assistant also at CSU with Gomans. Chris and Ron, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. So when we start, Chris, with you, just describe the survey, how it came to be, and, and what it's about. 
The survey is the byproduct of a two- to three-year collaboration with the Colorado Water Conservation Board and the Colorado Department of Ag and in Colorado State University. Um, and the goal coming out of the 2011 drought was really to help the state develop a better understanding of the impacts of drought, how farmers are adapting to drought, and kind of the long-term ways in which drought impacts rural communities so that the state could help to um, define better policies that met the needs of producers in Colorado. And so what were you hoping to get out of it? Was this mainly for policymakers to figure what can we do, whether it's through incentives or... Well, as the last speaker, as a as a researcher, I'm always looking for publications. But I think what really drove this <laughs> was um, a desire to understand how we can make better policy and to understand how um, drought is impacting and shaping rural communities. We're looking at uh, most people are suggesting that drought is going to persist over the next 10 to 15 years, more so than what we've experienced in the past. And so it really helps to understand um, producers and how they respond and how drought impacts their, their behavior. And Ron, how about for you, if you could um, tell us your role and get us into the sort of nitty-gritty of the survey itself. Well, I was looking into resiliency, and the way that we were defining resiliency is the probability that that a farmer will exit the industry. So drought puts farmers into excess stress, so they have to sell off their assets. Um, Whether that's that's culling Mm -hmm. culling their cows or, or selling equipment. Um, and that that can have a negative effect on the agricultural industry and send economic shocks throughout the state, really. So those who are most resilient would be, what, those who are kind of used to unpredictability to begin with, or how do you distinguish? Yeah, one of our findings was that resiliency is dependent on where they are in Colorado, which is related to where where there are more droughts. So the southeast gets a lot of droughts, and they were found to be more resilient than other parts of the state because they are used to droughts, and they probably plan for them. So what's an example of how one who's super resilient in that area would plan? It's like shifting the crops year to year? or Yeah, you can change crops at the beginning of the season to prepare for it with a less water-intensive crop, but you can also be have savings saved up so you can take that economic hit when when the drought comes around. So more cash in the bank. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And what's an example, um, how about, Ron, for you, of one of the most extreme, you know, some operation that's really been hit hard? Where and and what are they doing about it? Well, a lot of the dry land ag was hit hard this year. I mean, the wheat, barley, um, beans, I mean, you name it. They all got hit pretty hard. The corn also got hit really hard, too. Yeah, and this following 2011, we kind of saw the same thing. There really are two different types of producers, those that are able to irrigate and uh, those those that aren't. And dryland farmers uh, in 2011 in the southeast and the south central areas, we saw yields decrease by 50, 60 percent. And we're seeing... Wow, for those who couldn't irrigate because there's no water. Exactly. And we see similar sorts of reductions in yields in 2012. And so that segment of the agricultural community is hit especially hard by, by these droughts. And would some who are used to irrigation switch to dry land, or is that just a matter of where you have water rights, where you have access to water? I mean, are they shifting to that degree, Chris? Well, that, that, that's a great question. One of the things that we really wanted to 
uh, understand coming out of this was how producers adapt to these sorts of conditions. And in 2011, the drought was um, not foreseen by a lot of people. And so in terms of adaptation practices, we didn't see that. In 2012, there was producers taking a much more proactive stance, either um, not uh, planting fields, um, and in the, in the the catch twenty two here is that when they when they take these uh, make efforts to change their production practices to plant less, they um, have much larger impacts on the rural communities because their spending and economic activity within the region decreases. Mm-hmm. And so all of these these actions that farmers are taking when they can anticipate drought, they have a much larger impact on the communities. And so many of these communities are quite small and super dependent on those players. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one other thing, just um, what, how does the future look then right now? How about Ron? Well, the drought prediction isn't very good. Um, and Despite the, the recent snow. So that's yeah. just an aberration or just here where we're not an ag-rich yeah. place to begin with? It's just kind of in, in this region that they saw more of a decrease in the drought conditions. But the problem is is that when these multi-year droughts start linking together, that's when the savings start to dwindle and you'll see farmers becoming more desperate. Mm-hmm. Well, so much more on the topic. We'll revisit it. But um, that was Christopher Gomans, assistant professor in the Department of Agriculture and Resource Economics at Colorado State University, and Ron Nilsson with him. Chris and Ron, thanks a lot for coming to How on Earth. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Up a Fire and Joe West. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.